reading will be from Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. I'll be reading from the ESV. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. If you weren't reading along as Derek read that passage, shame on you. And stay there, if you will, because we're going to be walking back through that passage this morning. I know that we presented a number of different lessons on this wonderful, powerful package, but uh, I I want us to to look at it again through a different window of illustration this morning. But before we do that, I always try to, on Sunday mornings when I get up here, to express my deep appreciation for all of you who are here in this building, as well as those who are joining us online. And uh, I'm impressed day by day and week by week with how many people are continuing to join us online, and we're very grateful for that. And and in particular, uh, just this past week, I've been emailing back and forth with a a friend of mine that we knew back in the Atlanta days. And so uh, to Bob and Luetta Smith, good to see you. And... uh, uh, they are joining us from Centennial, Colorado, and uh, it is delightful that, uh, to know that they are, are joining us online and have been worshiping with us for the past few months, as, as well as Sharon Morton. I don't know if you look around, notice Sharon is not here, and she flew out, and I assume that she is uh, joining us this morning with Keith and Lauren online. So, Sharon, we miss you, and uh, we hope that she'll be back with us safely. Also, let me just go ahead and state up front that then when Sharon was leaving town, uh, she made sure that uh, before she left uh, that she sent out the outlines. And she did. And they are the full content outlines. So let's review. Uh, several of you Wednesday night, in fact, informed me that those full content outlines had been sent out. And, and so, uh, Pierce Nell, great to see you. Good to have you back. Wow, this is wonderful. This is like old home week. Uh, I hope that uh, if, you, if you read through those outlines that you learned something. And uh, if not, we're going to remind you of a few central biblical truths this morning that I think will help all of us. And I'm going to begin with just a word of advice about fishing. If you, know, if you know me, you know I'm not a hunter or a fisherman, so I'm very reluctant to give advice. 
but uh, what kind of advice I'm about to give you, I think you'll understand in just a couple of minutes, and that is, if you plan to go fishing, do not take me along. <laughs> uh, while I would appreciate the invitation, I know that I would enjoy the company, but if your goal is to actually catch any fish, then you don't want me in the boat, because they are never biting whenever I go fishing. Uh, and, and if you're thinking right now, well, I bet you never tried. That's not true either. I have fished in ponds and lakes and rivers and streams and mud holes. And they were always biting the day before. <laughs> or just down the river or with some other kind of bait. I have fished in the daytime. I have fished at night. And all I caught was a cold. And, and that's one of the reasons why I find our text here today in Luke chapter 5 to be both reassuring and convicting and it's reassuring because it reminds me that sometimes even the pros come up empty when they go fishing and also it, it's it's reassuring because it reminds me as well and it's convicting too because it teaches me to never ever ever underestimate the power of Jesus amen so Call to fish. Let's look at the text closely this morning and, and, and run through it and, and see some, some spiritual takeaways that I think that would benefit every one of us. So in this text, Jesus is pairing, preparing Peter and James and John for their call to discipleship. So this is a critical stage in Jesus' ministry, and we need to know how critical and pivotal this particular opportunity is. He's like the Marines in that he's looking for a few good men. And so to kind of stay with the fishing analogy, rather than casting a broad net, he is line fishing for, for one man at a time. That's what he's doing. And for the rest of his time on earth, we know that Jesus is going to be focused on these men and preparing them and equipping them for service so that when he leaves this world, and, he, and he's going to do that, and he tries to prepare them for that time as well, what, what's going to happen when he is gone? that they will carry on his work and his legacy. Now, please appreciate that these were real men's men. They were rugged and robust. They were sincere, and they were open-hearted and earnest men. And there's no doubt that they could be a, a bit quarrelsome. We, we see that as we march through the synoptic gospels. And, and sometimes they were weak and indecisive, and often they were spiritually dull. And by that, by that, I mean, that's just the diplomatic way of saying that there were times when they just didn't get it. Jesus would say something and it just went, you know, straight over their heads. And so they did not understand. In fact, I believe that there are some things in light of the first chapter of First Peter that they did not fully appreciate until after Jesus had already been nailed to that old rugged cross. But they were also passionately loyal Appreciate that as we walk through this text this morning. And, and they could be surprisingly courageous at times, as, as I'm sure that you have known, noted as, as you've read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But for the most part, the disciples were unschooled. Acts 4 verse 13 kind of implies that everybody knew that. These, these men were unlearned. They were uneducated. And, uh, and, and that was a part of just of, of who they were. And, and they were theologically unsophisticated, but they were also teachable, and they were open, and they were eagerly looking for the truth. That's the kind of people that Jesus can really use. So it's into these men that Jesus is going to pour out his life, and it's to this group of men that he will entrust the growth of his coming church, and we will see that a little bit later on. M much would depend on them. 
and, and certainly there's a lot that would be expected of them. And so it was critical that from the very beginning, Jesus makes them aware of the nature of their mission, what it meant, what, in, what would be involved in carrying on the work that Jesus had set before them, and it, and it would give them the confidence that they needed. They, they just needed to know that Jesus uh, had confidence in them, that he had given these 12 men uh, such a tremendously important task that he had not given to anyone else, and, and I don't know if they fully appreciated that all the time, but they came to understand that, I believe, a little bit more and more as his, as his mission and his ministry continued. So our entire episode, I think, is really an object lesson to, to these disciples as well as to us today. And especially, especially to Simon Peter, as we track the progression of this text, we can see a gradual transformation taking place in Peter's heart, and in his understanding, and then in his life. So look at with me, if you will, for just some really important qualities and characteristics of Peter that I think are especially important. The first thing is that Peter was, it was a reluctant fisherman. I'm, I'm going to try to make all of these points alliterative, therefore scriptural this morning. That's the scriptural way to preach. And so the first one is that he was a reluctant fisherman, and that becomes very obvious in our text. Look at verses 4 and 5. I'm going to read that again. When he had stopped speaking, that he is Jesus, when he stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep, let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. And then there's that, that next phrase that just packs so much power. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. Now, fishermen in general were a rough, profane lot. And it doesn't take a great deal of imagination to imagine Peter kind of, you know, mumbling and grumbling under his breath at this unreasonable request from a traveling itinerant preacher. I mean, after all, his men were exhausted because fishing in the Sea of Galilee was back-breaking work and Peter understood that it could just, you know, really take it out of you. And this is at the end of the night, the end of a shift of working. And so these men are just absolutely fatigued. Kent Hughes says in his book on Luke, he says, and I quote, basically, it involved laying out a great net in a semicircle encompassing over 100 feet, drawing it in wet, hand over hand, and then repeating that procedure over and over and over again throughout the night. Now, also remember that they'd already, the Bible says, fished all night, and they'd had no luck. Time after time, the nets had come up empty. So in addition to the fact that this was, was back-breaking work, there, there's the emotional factor. When these guys come back to shore to wash their nets and to end their work day, there had to be in their minds the thoughts of their wives and their children back at home, expecting, if not fish, at least the bounty, the, the payoff that would come from catching fish and and this time there was absolutely nothing. So there's, there's an emotional disappointment that I think is at play here as well. And on, on top of all of that, look at verse 2. It tells us that they had already washed their nets. So any fisherman would have been very reluctant to have repeated that kind of tedious, time-consuming job. Just washing the nets within itself could take a couple of hours. And, uh, uh, and, and when you look at this text, we're really impacted by that. And then here's what else. It, it was morning, which was the absolutely worst time to fish. Now, now, Jesus was clearly, he was clearly the greatest preacher and teacher 
who ever walked this, the face of this earth. I don't think there's any debate about that. And, and he was likely a competent carpenter. I just can't imagine God become flesh being anything less than good at anything that he would do. So I imagine Jesus was a good carpenter. But Peter was the professional fisherman in this bunch. And while he may not have known a great deal about theology, he did know fish. And he knew that if the, if the fish weren't biting, then they weren't biting. I mean, you might as well just go ahead and go home. They'd been fishing all night with absolutely no success. But Peter, again, with that understanding and with that experience under his belt, then says, as we noted a moment ago in the reading, because you say so. The King James that I'm reading from, or the New King James, says, nevertheless, at your word, we will. That's really a powerful statement. And it isn't clear from the text whether Peter is saying, Lord, I acknowledge your authority. And so I'm going to bow to your authority. Nevertheless, at your word, I will. Or maybe, and this is a possibility, that Peter is saying, uh, don't blame me when we come up empty again. I want everybody here to know that this was your idea. That's a possibility too, and the commentators all point that out. But at least he did obey. Perhaps begrudgingly, but bottom line is he did do what Jesus had told him to do. And that's why we're calling Peter the reluctant fisherman at this stage. It's very similar in a lot of ways, I think, to Mary's statement over in John 2, verse 5. Remember that first miracle that Jesus worked at, at Cana at the wedding feast? And, and, and it was Jesus' mother who said, uh, hey, we got a problem, and she, she wanted Jesus to take care of it. Well, to those responsible for the catering of that particular wedding, she said, do whatever he, that is Jesus, tells you to do. And that's kind of a blanket statement. That's very similar to what Peter is saying here. Nevertheless, whatever it is that you require of us, whatever it is that you ask of us, that's exactly what we're going to do. Now let's kind of take that, if we may, and translate that in terms of principle into our lives today. When it comes to sharing the gospel, the good news, I think we are sometimes reluctant to do that. We're kind of like Peter and those fishermen standing on the shore going, I don't, I don't think this is a good idea. I mean, we fished all night. We've caught absolutely nothing. And, and we can feel kind of like Peter on the inside. When Jesus said, go preach the gospel to every creature, we immediately began to think, man, there must be some kind of miscommunication. Because Jesus doesn't understand what kind of society that we're living in and how resistant people are to the gospel message in our day and time. Because we just know that, you know, people aren't interested. And because we know that they're satisfied with their present church home. And, and we know that they won't listen. If they do, it'll be with glazed eyes and hard hearts. So surely there was some miscommunication when Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. And we're kind of thinking, after all, if they would listen, if they were receptive, then why aren't they here already? As if the suction on the church house doors ought to pull people in. As if people ought to be just turning themselves in at the church office requesting baptism without there being any effort on our part. So like Peter, we're prone to say when Jesus says, I want you to go fish for men, we, we, we're, our response is, why bother? Why should we go and fish in an empty hole? But folks, evangelism means faithfulness. I am not suggesting that those two words are used interchangeably even in scripture because they aren't. But I am saying that if we become evangelistic-minded people, if we become soul winners, if we're interested in not just our own souls, but the souls of others, that means that we ourselves are going to have to be faithful, just like Peter and the rest of these fishermen were. 
And we need to learn an important lesson from Peter, and that is just do it. Just do whatever it is that the Savior tells us to do. And and, and it's imperative that we come to understand that. Now, if if in the language of, of Scripture, if we would just speak, that's a powerful statement found elsewhere, but it's one that I think that ought to be in our hearts today. If we would but speak. Did you know most of the time, in, in the modern church, souls are not won by the professionals. And by that I mean the guys who are on the church staff. But they are won by ordinary folks who don't know that it can't be done. They're just doing it. They're just sharing the gospel. They're just talking to their friends, their co-workers, their family about Jesus and maybe even setting up Bible studies. We'll talk about that, Lord willing, next Sunday morning. But when we come to that point in our lives where we just stop questioning, hey, will this work? And have we dipped our nets enough times not to show the Lord that that it won't work in Montgomery, Alabama? If we'll just get to the point where we likewise are willing to say with the same sincerity, I believe that Peter had, nevertheless, at your word, we will. Secondly, Peter became a remarkable fisherman. He moved from a reluctant fisherman to a remarkable fisherman. Look at verses 6 and 7 in our text. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. Now, not only expect results from the Lord when we do what he said that we're supposed to be doing, but we'll also expect great results. The Lord will do more than we ever imagined. Verse 7, so they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. Can you imagine how these men must have been reacting on the inside when that happened? So Peter was surprised. And that is a tremendous understatement. And their reluctance soon goes from reluctance to absolute and utter amazement. Let me tell you from a personal perspective, it's kind of hard for me to admit this, but I have, I've shared the gospel, the good news with people that I was surprised when they agreed to be baptized. In fact, there's a couple of people I I can think, and I know their names right now in my head. I'm not going to give you their names for obvious reasons, but I was shocked when I said, do you want to go down to the building and, and let's baptize you into Christ? And they said, yes. I think that's kind of what's going on here. That when this worked, Peter and the other guys are just absolutely amazed. So often we're reluctant to speak a word for Jesus that we actually run from opportunities. So it isn't that people are slamming doors in our face. Folks, we're slamming our own doors. We're slamming doors when there could be wonderful opportunities to be able to speak a word for Jesus. It's almost as if we think that by looking at people that we can tell just intuitively that they have gospel-hardened hearts and that we would be wasting our time and effort to speak to them about the Lord and about salvation. That reminds me of the story of two hunters who went to Alaska and they were on a bear hunt and they were successful. They found the footprints of a big, and I mean a huge, grizzly bear. And after thoughtfully examining those enormous footprints for a few minutes, the first hunter said, why don't you go that way and see where he went? And I'll go this way and to see where he came from. Well, that doesn't require any risk at all, does it? Sometimes that's what we do in our evangelistic, just to make sure that I don't come in contact with what it was that we came out here looking for. 
So often we're reluctant, and then, and then God surprises us. Remember 1 Corinthians 3, 6. And if that doesn't come to your mind right now, we're going to return to it in just a moment. I think we can see this in Jonah in the Old Testament pages, can't we? He didn't want to go to Nineveh. In fact, he did his very best to not answer God's call and argued with him about it. And only after a traumatic near-death experience and a dramatic rescue does he grudgingly go to Nineveh and preach a brief, angry message. And you may remember, the whole city repented. That wasn't what Jonah either expected or wanted. But that's what happened anyway. The Lord blessed his efforts when he just did what it was that God had told him to do in the first place. I think we can see this in Anna, Ananias rather, in the New Testament pages. The last person Ananias wanted to speak to about Christ was Saul of Tarsus because Saul of Tarsus had a terrible reputation as being very injurious to the health of Christians. In fact, some of them had died because of uh, the documentation that he had made possible to, to prove that they were New Testament Christians. And so they were executed as a result of the work of Saul. And, and I mean, how many of us would have wanted that visitation assignment? You know, I want you to go and to speak to Saul of Tarsus about his soul. Now, Ananias, as you recall, argued with the Lord about that assignment. But God persuaded him to overcome his doubts and to go and tell Saul about Jesus. And you may remember how it all turned out. Consequently, Ananias wound up baptizing the man who would later be responsible for the conversion of literally thousands of people. We talked about this some Wednesday night when Kevin was teaching the men's class. You, you never know, you never know who it is that you're leading to the Lord. And you never know how much potential there is in that seed that has been planted that can come up and produce great fruit, fruitfulness in the Lord's cause and for, his, and for his service. I think we can see this later on in the life of Paul, especially at Corinth. And I'm thinking specifically of Acts 18 that talks about the beginning of the church there. And verses 9 and 10, where the Lord says, Do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you, and, no, and go on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. Sometimes that's what we need to hear. Just uh, the Lord reminding us, you, you need to keep on speaking. But Lord, nobody's listening. We've, we have fished all night, and, and we've caught absolutely... Keep on speaking, but Lord, you don't understand what kind of packed schedule that I have and how difficult it is with other people and their packed schedules to just set up one opportunity, one time to sh just keep on speaking. That's the message I believe that the modern church needs to hear most right now so that we will recognize how important it is that we share this saving message with those around us. This is not something that the Lord wants us to keep to ourselves. He's delighted that you're a Christian this morning, if you are. But he wants to see how far you can go. He wants to see what potential, what, what life there is in that gospel seed that's been planted in your heart. And, and we just need to understand that all we need is just faithfulness. To speak God's message. And God will provide the, the fruitfulness. He's promised that. The passage I referenced a moment ago, 1 Corinthians 3, 6, is where Paul very simply but powerfully says, I planted and Apollos watered, but it was God who gave the increase. And you may not remember verse 7 that comes right after it. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. 
Isaiah understood that. He said in Isaiah 55, 10, and 11 that God's word will not, will not return unto him void. It will accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. And God will bless us likewise if we just do what he has said for us to do, and that is to go and make disciples of all nations, starting right here in our Jerusalem in Montgomery, Alabama. And Peter learned from experience to trust the Lord. If the Lord says to fish, it's up to us to launch out into the deep, and it's up to him to fill the net. And he's promised to do that. And we should do the sowing and let him do the sifting and the increased giving. So evangelism means fruitfulness if, if we're willing to trust and leave the results to the Lord. Here's a third stage that we find Peter in. And this is verses 8 through the first part of verse 10. Peter becomes a repentant fisherman. Look at these verses with me. Verse 8 starting. When Simon Peter saw it, that is all these fish, took two boats and the boats were sinking because of the great catch. When Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Now through this object lesson, Jesus has clearly struck a chord with Peter. Peter didn't know the fine points of theology. But he did know fish and fishing. And he recognized that he had vastly, and I mean vastly, underestimated the power of Jesus. Before... As we noticed in our first point, Peter was grumbling. He doesn't understand. We've been fishing all night. But now what's Peter doing? He's worshiping. He's gone from grumbling to worshiping in five verses. I wish to God we could do that. Amen? I mean, if we could just stop grumbling about our circumstances and how gospel-hardened the hearts of people are in our world today, and just do what God said do, we could start worshiping, I mean, with greater significance and with a greater sense of awe and thanksgiving because of the fruitfulness that God has made evident among us. He's humbled. He's struck by his own unworthiness. And In fact, the passage, doesn't it seem to imply that he now feels unworthy to even be in the presence of Jesus? But far from leaving Peter and saying, okay, I'm through with you, Jesus now calls him to service. And don't miss that. We, we think that when we're broken, that we're useless. But God knows that only when we're broken is when we have, are fully equipped for service. So folks, do not, do not uh, grieve about your brokenness. Celebrate it. Because in Scripture, as we talked about last Sunday, only when a person is broken, God says, now I can truly use that person. It also points, I think, to the immutable fact that we, we must recognize our own lostness before we can ever be saved. We have, to, we have to empty our spiritual cup before we can allow the, the Father to, to fill that. David finally came to realize that truth in his own life. Back in Psalm 51, you know that great penitential psalm. In verse 17, he says, The sacrifice of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not refuse. So when you get to that point of brokenness, you know that now God can really use you in a profound and powerful way. And that reassures us that the only one qualified to share the gospel is a saved sinner. That's where we are today, folks. 
And then just a few verses later in Psalm 51, verse 13, watch this. Watch the transition and the transformation that has taken place in David's thinking. Then, he says, if you will just restore unto me the joy of my salvation, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. What's David saying? Man, I am going to tell everybody about this. Once I'm back in a right standing with God, nobody is going to shut me up from, from this day forward. I'm going to begin proclaiming to anybody that's willing to listen and to some who aren't how wonderful that God has been in my life. And I'm just telling us this morning, church, that the good news of salvation will flow and it will flow naturally from those who have been saved and who fully appreciate the salvation that has been brought down by a gracious and a forgiving Heavenly Father. So when it comes to soul winning, we don't, need, we don't need new methods so much as we need new men. We need a transformation to take place in our own hearts and lives. And we can become sometimes so preoccupied with whiz-bang, elaborate, can't-miss methods of reaching the lost. Any new idea that comes along in the brotherhood, we want to jump on that idea as if it was brand new and revolutionary. Let me give you an example of that. Some years ago, a group of churches conducted a very, very and I mean very expensive, mass media uh, campaign in Dallas, Texas. And, and I don't want to even begin because it's kind of embarrassing to tell you how many hundreds of thousands of dollars this mass media campaign. In other words, they just bought television time and that kind of thing, and, and which was very expensive in Dallas, as you could imagine. 175 churches were mobilized to be a part of that campaign. 16,117 people were contacted as a result of this campaign. But only 76 people eventually became a part of any congregation, an active part of any congregation as a result. That's not a very good batting average, and I don't have to tell you that. You can work the numbers yourself. On the other hand, when we see Jesus encouraging his disciples to be soul winners... And when Jesus did that himself, whenever he shared the saving truth with people around him during his ministry, his method was always to use a man, to use a person, to use any brother or sister in Christ that's willing to be used and willing to open their mouth and to speak a word for Jesus. Not even to angels has he granted that holy task. God's plan for spreading the good news has always been people reaching other people. And if you want the Bible for it, here it is, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. The message that has been committed to you, the same commit thou to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so if you'll just start that ball rolling, just you start sharing the gospel message with others, and they'll share it with others, and there's the pyramid factor that's involved. The Lord's church will grow hand over fist. And so when folks are changed, and I mean truly changed, they'll, they'll find some kind of method to be able to share that saving message with others. Love will find a way. So at its core, evangelism or soul winning means falling at the feet of Jesus and acknowledging I am a sinful man, O Lord. You know, there's never been a greater missionary, I think, than the Apostle Paul. And here's what he said to his young protege, Timothy. I think we may have mentioned this last Sunday, but it's worth mentioning again. He said, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I am the worst. Only then, when we recognize our lostness and our brokenness, are we qualified to be able to share that saving message with others. Finally, Simon and Peter became a redirected fisherman. Look, if you will, at the latter part of verse 10 is where we left off. 
through verse 11. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. Ever wondered why that particular declaration is in scripture? Do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. And so when they had brought their boats to the land, they forsook all and followed him. What a great passage to end this study with this morning. And and here's where we discover what Jesus had in mind all along. Now we realize why the master teacher had made such an outlandish request of those men who really knew fishing. I think we've established that. Here's the whole point of this fishing trip. It's Jesus' own statement. Don't be afraid. From now on, you'll catch men. Kent Hughes notes that there's an interesting lesson to be learned from just looking at the original Greek in this text. The phrase to catch men is a combination actually of two Greek words. The first one, zoos, meaning alive, and another Greek word, which I find it impossible to pronounce, that means catch or hunt, to catch or hunt alive. Notice the contrast, if you will, on this particular fishing trip. Jesus was literally telling Peter that unlike fishing for fish so that they can die and wind up on somebody's dinner plate, you're going to be fishing for men so that they can live. And I mean really live for the first time. To understand what it means to have life in Jesus Christ and then to have the prospect, the promise, the assurance of living with God forever in heaven. And we can learn, I think, a number of valuable lessons here about what it takes to share our faith with others. For example, is in the passage we just read, is the confidence that we would need. The Lord said, don't be afraid. That's what he told those rookie disciples. Don't be afraid. And when it comes to making the University Church of Christ more soul conscious and more willing to open our mouths and to share our faith with others, I think those are the words that we need to hear this morning. Don't be afraid. I was carrying on a conversation this past week with a very dear brother in Christ. And we were talking about a thorny issue that we are seeing now in the, in the Lord's church. And at the end of that conversation, I pointed to my Bible on my desk. And I said, but while we consider this information very disturbing, let's not ever forget that right here is the most powerful force in the universe. It is the force that God has revealed to man so that our lives can be transformed, our thinking can be changed, and we can turn this world on its ear for Jesus. That happened in the first century, folks. I'm suggesting it can happen again in the 21st century. So we need that kind of confidence and we need that kind of courage. Jesus said, don't be afraid. Go make disciples and I will be with you always, even until the end of the world. And then we need that commitment. The biblical record says they left all to follow him. Don't, re- don't forget that last verse. They left all to follow Jesus. And we can tell that they understood the lesson that Jesus was trying to teach them because they abandoned the fish. Are you hearing me, church? They abandoned the fish in order to follow the one who had provided the fish. They realize the most astounding thing that has happened to us today is that we didn't get two boats full of fish. It's what we have seen in the life and the word of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I think when we get to that point in In our lives, in our understanding, our awareness, it'll change our lives too. But this has to be the most important lesson of all. And I'm going to leave it with you this morning. Following comes before fishing. 
Following comes before fishing. If Peter was ever going to learn how to really fish, he had to get out of the water and he had to follow Jesus. And and this lesson works both ways, by the way. First, you can't follow without fishing. If we've learned anything about true discipleship in our study of Scripture, we've learned that we haven't truly become like Jesus until we have gained his vision for the lost. And so second, we can't fish without following. Does that make sense? You can't follow without fishing and you can't fish without following. That is, we can't share our faith until and unless we are actively following Jesus ourselves. And that's for the simple truth. You cannot share what you do not have yourself. And we can't describe what we haven't seen. And we can't lead where we haven't gone. And we can't tell what we don't know ourselves. Jesus said in John 15, 5, I am the vine and you, talking to his disciples, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. That's good news for the University Church of Christ. To know that if we're doing God's will and we're following him ourselves as faithfully as we can every day, that he has promised that we will be a fruitful congregation. And I, b- I believe that that has many ramifications in the spiritual realm, not just soul winning, but that's one of them. Soul winning means most fundamentally that we're following Jesus, doing our dead level best every day to walk in his footsteps. So what Jesus taught Peter and the other disciples that day was a critical lesson. I hope that we have come to appreciate that point. Jesus was calling Peter to discipleship and, and to service and, and to future leadership. And he had to teach Peter the very nature of evangelism. And that was the reason, that was one reason that Peter could not learn any of those things from a classroom. So Jesus taught him the only way possible. And that was in a boat. And it teaches us all that we need to know about evangelism 2,000 years later. Peter was reluctant. And guess what? So often, so are we. We have to learn faithfulness. And oftentimes we have to learn it by just doing it. Just like they did, just taking his word and doing what he said to do. And then Peter became remarkably successful. And God's promise, his assurance to us, is that we can be too. And we have to realize that fruitfulness comes from God working through us if we will only allow him to do that. And then Peter became repentant. And so should we. We all need to fall at the foot of the cross, realizing our own unworthiness. And that it should not keep us from speaking. And it will cause us, in fact to speak. The more unworthy I'm aware that I am, the more it ought to cause me and motivate me and incentivize me to share that saving message with those around me. 